0: Hello! Welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios with Emily Peck
1: of Axios. Hello, hello.
0: With Elizabeth Spires of some fabulous new Substack News called what?
1: The New York Times. <laughs> 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 uh, my new one is
0: Button Down. Button Down. I like it, like my shirts. We are going to talk about all manner of fun things this week, starting with Disney in the middle of a proxy fight. They had a bunch of big announcements involving Fortnite and sports and other stuff, so we're going to talk about that. We are going to talk about New York Community Bancor, which may or may not be in crisis, and I think we will come to a conclusion about whether it is or not. We are going to talk about the SAT and whether it is a good thing or a bad thing. We have a whole Sleep Plus segment on Super Bowl ads. It's all coming up on Sleep Plus money. Okay, Elizabeth Spires, you have been deputized to become the expert on all things Nelson Peltz and Disney. So you can tell me if I'm right or if I'm wrong when I say that Nelson Peltz is this corporate raider type who decided to pick a fight with Disney and over the past few weeks, he's basically got what he wanted, but being Nelson Peltz, he hasn't given up. Is that about right?
1: Yes, that that is pretty accurate. So he wanted a Disney to stem their streaming losses. He wants a board seat, which he does not have. And his company, Tryon, owns $3 billion worth of the stock.
0: Is that a lot? I mean, Disney's worth over $100 billion, right?
1: I think it's, it's a lot for Nelson Peltz. I'm not sure that it's a lot relative to, you know, Disney's size. But he's still unhappy. So Iger basically did what he asked.
0: Iger being Bob Iger, the once and current Disney CEO. Yeah.
1: The streaming losses last quarter were a little over a billion dollars and he cut it to two hundred and sixteen million in one quarter, which is pretty I think, impressive.
0: And that's after paying a whole bunch of money to Taylor Swift to stream her concert movie with five extra songs, which I went to see that movie and it was long enough to begin with. I'm like, this is going to be, you know, a three-day marathon by the time it streams on Disney+. Plus.
2: Are you a hardcore Swifty? Am I a
0: hardcore Swifty? No, I am not a hardcore Swifty. Because...
2: That's who Iger and Disney are aiming to get. They're get, aiming to get some hardcore Swifty sign up so that they can see the extra songs in the movie.
1: It's going to work. You know it's going to work.
2: <laughs> Clearly.
1: Well, are you a Fortnite fan, though? Because Disney also took a $1.5 billion stake in Epic Games, which owns Fortnite, which is one of the most popular.
0: Is this Disney getting into gaming, or is this Disney basically saying what we want to do – is have a closer relationship with Epic so that they and we can cooperate on IP stuff. Because one of the things about Fortnite, if I understand it, and frankly, I don't, is that you can play as characters. And so if Disney owns the Avengers, then maybe like you can go into Fortnite and play as Iron Man.
1: They're using language where they're calling it a persistent universe. Uh, And what they mean by that is that they can use... Disney IP in the game, and they're they're sort of basing it off of a really successful collaboration they had that Fortnite had with Lego. So there's a, a sort of Lego and Fortnite version that's really popular, and you know it's it's an opportunity to sell stuff.
2: This again is a play for just like the Swifty move would be a play to get Swifties to sign up for Disney Plus. Getting involved with Fortnite, which I mean, Elizabeth and I know we both have kids who play Fortnite, is a way to get the younger generation hooked into Disney because it's a way to get their brand into a universe where younger people actually are and they'll have exposure, you know, to Disney, to Marvel, to Star Wars. I I asked my son to give me like a little information on what he's doing in that world. And I'm like, what brands do you see in Fortnite? And he said, Nike, Balenciaga. Like is Disney there? He's like, yeah, there's some Marvel stuff there. You know, that's that's where kids don't watch TV that much anymore. This is where they are. This
0: is, this is wild. Like there were two things you just said to me that just blew my mind, by the way, Emily. The first one is like this whole concept of getting the kids into Disney. Like that has always been the one thing that Disney's never had any problem with, right? Disney has always been the 900 pound gorilla in the world of kids. And the idea that Disney might there might be kids who aren't completely into Disney. I'm like, wow, that okay. And then the second thing you said, which was almost even more s- astonishing, is that Fortnite, which is really you know aimed at the kind of tween world, you know, the second brand he names is Balenciaga. I, know. I couldn't believe <laughs> that either.
1: <laughs> There's, I think, the age range on, on Fortnite is pretty wide, though. So I I think it's not just getting tweens. Yeah, you have to go where the people are. You go where the
0: people are. No, We've talked about Fortnite on this show in the past, and it's a social network. It's a very successful social network. People use it as a place to talk to their friends. And Disney has always had a, how to say, conflicted, Relationship when it comes to social networks, and you know, at various times, it's considered buying one or not buying one or building one. And I think Fortnite is the most brand-safe social network in the world, and it makes sense that that would be the one that Disney chose to partner up with.
1: Well, another factor is that there there's actual entertainment within Fortnite. They do concerts. They've done collaborations with celebrities. So there there seems to be, you know, an, an endemic opportunity for Disney to put entertainment that it already owns in the ecosystem.
2: Yeah. I mean, Disney, I mean, like like Felix, it is kind of crazy to think that the, the kids today don't care about Disney, but like they haven't really had a great big old blockbuster kind of Disney movie hit in a really long time. Like one of Iger's big announcements this week was that they're making Moana 2 and he was like, we're getting out of a rut. We're making Moana two, and it's like, (laughs) brother, right? (laughs) Producing a sequel is not a big getting out of a rut moment. Like this is no great leap for you.
0: And and (laughs) Pixar has been a big disappointment. Pixar has always had a whole stream of like non sequels that have kind of come and gone without anyone noticing, and and everyone's like, Pixar has whatever like magic Pixar managed to bottle has leaked out somewhere along the way.
2: The same for Disney. I mean, and they've been in place in a place like that before. And that's one of Peltz's big criticisms. And yeah, the stock went up this week because, like Elizabeth said, Disney paired its losses and it announced this. Fortnite thing and we might want to get into this other thing that they announced the sports streaming bundle thing but like I don't know if Pelt's got what he wanted this seems like small ball stuff all kind of wrapped together it's like what you would tell your boss like oh yeah i'm totally doing the things you want me to do i uh, i i i i'm working on my calendar management and um you know i have my talking points and i did a, this like it just doesn't feel
0: but realistically speaking, Emily, I feel like in terms of how much of a change Disney can make in the ca- in the space of one quarter, the only real big thing that Nelson Peltz wants and that Disney hasn't provided is a succession plan. And like, what is, what is the plan for a post Iger Disney? And is there a plan for a post Iger Disney? And that's the one thing that's still missing.
2: They need another Moana. They need a Frozen. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. like that's really what they need. A succession plan is like...
0: But we should talk about the sports thing because I think in a weird way, that's actually the biggest announcement of the week, which is that Disney has basically created Hulu 2, the sequel, only this time it's sports. And Disney is the giant of sports entertainment. It owns ESPN and the ESPN is by far the biggest brand in sports media. But the question is how do you get into streaming? Do you get into streaming? Streaming involves like a whole new level of technology and money and bids and you know Disney doesn't even Disney which is enormous feels like it's not big enough to compete with the other streamers and so it's teamed up with Fox.
2: It's Fox, ABC and TNT. ESPN, ABC, Fox, TNT, Fox Sports, all the all the sports that those networks show on their channels would be streamed in one place together, plus extra TV shows from those channels. It's 14 altogether.
0: And then they, they would they would they would pitch in together if and when the rights come up for the next time they come up to be bought. Is that true? I think that's the idea, right? So that it prevents them from bidding against each other. Like what the idea is that oh. it's a cartel. Because, like, sports rights have been spiraling up and up and up in price so long that, like, all of the money is going to the sports leagues and there's no money left over for the broadcasters. And the broadcasters were like, great, we're going to create a cartel to try and not bid against each other.
2: Yeah, I think that could be the long-term strategy. But for now, it's just like they're, they're trying to make it seem a little more innocuous. Like, we already are running all this content on the TV we're just going to put it all together in one streaming place where you can get it and we don't have to negotiate new rights or anything with right. the sports peeps and they were uh, all surprised by it
0: apparently and that's and that's a an app that sells itself basically anyone yeah. who anyone who likes the sports is going to automatically subscribe to that app for $20 a month or however much they need to pay so let's take a break and come back and talk about another banking crisis because it's been like almost a year since the last banking crisis is it about time that we have a new one this episode of slate money is brought to you by wondery which is a podcast company and it makes a podcast called the best one yet and it is a daily podcast hosted by nick and jack who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts. With shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more, Wondery means business.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% Are you fed up with hearing ads on Slate Money? I mean, I know Felix and I do a pretty good job of reading them, but if you're over it, you don't want to hear ads, and you also want to hear more great stuff and read more great stuff from Slate, you should sign up for Slate Plus because with Slate Plus, you can listen to all their great podcasts with no ads, and you get unlimited access to all the stories on Slate.com, and there's a members-only newsletter that's really fun to get, Plus, plus, with plus. You get exclusive bonus segments like the one we're doing at the end of this show, where we talk about Super Bowl commercials and Elizabeth explains what Creed is to Felix. You don't want to miss that,
0: Emily. Yeah is is there a little baby, tiny, nascent, quasi banking crisis going on, or not so much?
2: I don't think there is, Felix. I don't think there is. There's the potential of a banking crisis, and people got
1: worried. Uh, There's an about embryonic. This
0: banking yes. crisis.
1: Yes, in Utah. If it's one bank is it really a crisis though or is it just a crisis for that bank? There's no
0: such thing as one bank. We've we've learned this over the past 15 years that there's like when one bank fails you know there's another one around the corner. With the possible exception of Credit Suisse, but even that one was like the fourth domino to fall after Silicon Valley Bank and all the rest of it. It's the same thing about Lehman Brothers. It wasn't too big to fail. It was too interconnected to fail. When it filed for bankruptcy, suddenly everyone else was connected to Lehman and everything went pear-shaped, to use a technical term. Um, But the bank in question is New York Community Bancorp, which you might not have heard of, but it's a big bank. It is over $100 billion of assets, which counts as a big bank. And the reason it is over $100 billion of assets is that a year ago, or just under, it snapped up most of the assets of Signature Bank, which was one of the banks that failed. Well, in fact, it failed on the same weekend as Silicon Valley Bank. And so Signature Bank fails. New York Community Bancorp buys most of its assets out of you know, receivership or however the system works with the FDIC. It had already just bought another bank called Flagstar, which is where most of its deposits are and where most of its branches are. And then suddenly it found itself quite quickly in this world of, oh, shit, we have over $100 billion. And now with, you know, Michael Barr and the new focus on tough regulation of big banks by the Fed, the the OCC, the big bank regulator, basically said, you're over $100 billion. You need more capital. You need more rigorous oversight. What the hell is going on here? Can you have another look at your commercial real estate loans? Wait, what on earth is going on with this office loan? And is it actually worth any money at all? And they were like, oh, shit. And they said, no, 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 you're right. We We need to be much more grown up and so on and so forth. And so we're going to provision... million against a whole bunch of commercial real estate losses that maybe we wouldn't have done, you know, in the olden days. And that caused a loss that caused a quarterly loss of $250 million. Oh, and they also said, and we're going to cut our dividend because we want to make sure that, you know, we're building up our capital to get to 10% capital between cutting the dividend and announcing the loss. The stock market hated it. The stock fell like 50% in a couple of days. And suddenly you're seeing a stock price with a nominal share price of like five bucks and it's down 50% in a couple of days and everyone's like, oh shit, this must be a banking crisis because this is the problem with being a public bank is that everyone just looks at the share price and if the share price is down, they're like, this must be a crisis.
2: But what really happened is regulators were on top of things and got this bank to shore up its balance sheet against potential losses. And so crisis averted?
0: I mean, that's what Sandro Dinello said, right? So part of the crisis, and, and there clearly was a crisis because the bank lost its chief risk officer and its chief audit officer, like, very quickly. Kind of looks like they were kind of pushed out by the regulators. And it also kind of, sort of lost its CEO because, like, no one's hearing from the CEO anymore. in, in Like, the CEO was the former CEO of NYCB. And then they put out this announcement saying, well, our former chairman, who was the former CEO of Flagstar, is now going to take over as executive chairman. He was you know, kind of respected as a, as a commercial banker. He comes in, takes over the big call with analysts, talks about profitability, talks about you, know, all, you know, fortress balance sheet, talks about all the right things. The CEO is weirdly silent. And so it kind of looks as though they've had a complete overhaul of senior management and and they're trying to say, you know, this is a, a clean slate. The new effective CEO, Donello just came out um announcing that he'd bought a whole bunch of stock to take advantage of the lower share price and show confidence in the bank. And so yeah, the narrative they're trying to push is very much like, you know, we we are strong and inherently profitable and we have a healthy net interest margin and we've made these provisions so that's not going to be a problem anymore and all's fine and dandy
1: is it still a problem for them that they have so much exposure to real estate specifically
0: hell yes so this is this is the big big problem at nycb which is that nycb itself was a big real estate lender Signature Bank was also a big real estate lender. You put these two big real estate, and when I say real estate, what I'm that they have two types of real estate: not residential mortgages, which are basically fine, but the dodgy types of real estate, which is one commercial real estate in New York, which, as Emily will tell you, having been covering this for the past three years, you know, is not recovering. People are not going back to the office. You know, companies want less office space, and so on and so forth. So, if you've lent against that office space, that could be bad. And two, multifamily housing in New York, and specifically the sort of low-end multifamily housing that is under rent control. And Emily, you're going to tell us what happened in 2019 and why that was so bad for the bank.
2: It's so interesting because the bank failures last year you, you all were tied to you know rising interest rates and ha- that messed up the value of a lot of assets on their balance sheets and that caused a lot of problems for them. And NYCB has that issue. But then there's this other issue that's so New York specific, which is this issue with rent stabilization. So way back in time, m- many years ago when I was still young in the 90s, New York City changed its rent stabilization rules and made them way worse For renters, they basically told landlords: if you do improvements on rent-stabilized housing, you can basically improve your way out of rent stabilization, and you can start charging market rents. And everyone, I remember back then, everyone freaking out like rents would were going up from like eight hundred dollars a month to like twenty five hundred dollars a month. Everyone was very upset. But landlords and commercial, you know, um, multifamily investors, all those kinds of people, love this because it meant they could get more money from these properties. So a lot of People started investing in it. Um, Famously, Blackstone bought Stuy Town, Stuyvesant Town, which is like this big, formerly like middle-class housing development in Manhattan near 14th Street. I mean, a lot of stuff happened. A lot of buildings got revamped, blah, 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 blah. But housing advocates never liked this for obvious reasons. So then in 2019, New York State actually reversed this law and brought back stronger rent stabilization laws. Great for renters, terrible for all the the landlords and the businesses that got into the market. And now a bank like NYCB is basically dealing with the fallout. I think the the value of their multifamily portfolio, Felix, correct me if I'm wrong, is like down like 30 or 40 percent now. Um, because landlords can't charge those those high rents anymore. So this so it's so interesting to me because Signature Bank, which they had bought. Like like this all started because they bought a bank that was struggling because of crypto and because of high interest rates. But now they're struggling, this this NYCB, for like rent stabilization policy reasons. And it's kind of like, maybe that's, that's fine. Like if a bank isn't doing well and the bank stockholders are losing money, but like the people of New York City are getting better rents, like I feel like I'm okay with this crisis so far.
0: <laughs> it's a classic case of like, Labor versus capital, right? The yeah. middle class New Yorkers in their rent stabilized apartments win and the bank on the corner, you know, whether you like the bank on the corner or you don't like the bank on the corner, you know, on some level it's a zero sum game and they're one of the losers. The big loser, of course, being the equity owner, the person who owns the building. And a lot of these buildings, as you say, are down fifty percent in value. But yeah, like housing values go up and down and you know, this law is not new. It was passed five years ago. So they should have seen this one coming.
2: They've been trying really hard to fight it. I think they took it, took a case all the way to the Supreme Court, which didn't hear it, which, wow, impressive. But yes, they should have seen this coming, right? And it's just unfortunate, I guess, for the bank that it's coming at a time when there's all these other headwinds, like there's the whole office apocalypse happening at the same time and interest rates are rising.
0: And then they did mention on the call, They were like, you know, they kind of said they didn't say in as many words, but they kind of said, well, look, obviously, we have this interest rate thing. If you want to just mark our loans to market on the basis of where interest rates are, then that's going to look really bad for us. That looks bad for everyone. But if you're worried about credit risk, then, you know, and then they started spinning it all much more positively that, you know. That there were two particularly bad office loans that they provisioned against, but that wasn't indicative of the quality of the commercial real estate portfolio more broadly, and yada yada yada. So yeah, I I think I'm I think I'm with you, Emily, that like if you look at the ratios of how much capital they have, and if you look at their quarterly income, you know, which still looks pretty healthily positive, even beyond the $0.05 dividend that they're still paying, I think I think they have a relatively um, sustainable future ahead of them. I don't think they're going to need to be rescued, which is good because I don't think there are very many potential buyers out there for a $100 billion bank filled to the brim with real estate.
2: On the other hand, and I'm curious what Elizabeth thinks about this, should we be more worried and less blase about what is happening with commercial real estate? Because we've been, and Felix has been kind of like ho hum about the thing all along because this is a sector that moves so slowly. And it seems like any crisis somehow winds up being contained and sort of slow moving. But like, maybe that's totally wrong. Maybe like the bottom's going to fall out and something really. Bad's going to happen, Elizabeth.
0: Maybe.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people are worried about that because there are a lot of companies that have big payments coming due in 2025, which yeah you know, sounds like it's far away, but it's really not. Especially if you have to restructure your debt.
0: When you say companies, you mean you mean office landlords, people who own the office buildings.
1: Yeah, yeah. So maybe in 2025,
2: no one no one can refinance, and then what?
0: Yeah, exactly. That's my that's been my position all along, which is that. We know what happens when people don't make payments on office buildings. You know, this happens all the time. It doesn't necessarily happen with enormous frequency, but it happens pretty regularly. And what happens is the, you know, equity holder gets wiped out. The lender, the you know, the first tier lender takes over the building um, and then probably tries to sell it and may or may not take a, lo- a loss on their loan. And the building itself doesn't change and the tenant relationships don't change you're still locked into the same lease and you're still paying rent every month and just the person cashing that rent check changes and that's why it doesn't bother me is that is that like unless i'm an owner of commercial real estate i don't see how this affects anyone except for the landlords
2: yeah on the residential side to get back to that rent stabilization law and the fallout there was this good Bloomberg piece last week, and there were a lot of stories about vacant apartments because the landlords that were trying to like milk them for above market rates can't do that anymore, so there's no one renting them out. But I think even there, I mean, the advocates were like, well, eventually this will all gets sorted out, and what will happen is rents will be lower. Like Someone's going to buy New York City real estate at some point.
0: Right, exactly. The value of all of these buildings, unencumbered by debt, is greater than zero, Right all of these offices are worth more than zero all of these multifamily apartment buildings are worth more than zero there is a price for them because they and they do cash flow like there is a demand to rent office space at a price there is a demand to rent rent stabilized apartments at a rent stabilized price those prices have a net present value and so yeah the the stock the building stock i think is fine
1: I think what people are worried about is just the you know sort of permanent changes that have happened because of the pandemic. You know, they're they're just renters who are not coming back into commercial spaces at all, and especially when you look at the very high end stuff, the Class A office space are usually dominated by knowledge workers who are now all working from home. There's just no customer for those spaces anymore.
0: You're right. That is the worry. I personally am not worried about that. I think that for the right price, there will always be someone wanting to rent a Class A office space for, you know, their business in Manhattan, you know, that, that you will be able to find. I think maybe some of the Class C office space is going to be harder. And maybe we can convert that to residential or, you know, something like that. But, or maybe we can just tear it down and convert it to housing or, you know, something more useful. But like, yeah, this is, this is how cities evolve. This does not worry me.
2: Yeah. I just did a story about retail commercial real estate actually and it made me think about office space a lot because retail has been like in crisis mode for a really long time, you know, since the advent of the internet changed the way people Yeah,
0: since pre-pandemic.
2: Yeah. And I mean, they've just they've basically just adjusted to the new world. Not really shopping malls, but like all the other stuff, all the other places people shop, like stores, retailers, they they've just they figured out how to live in the new world. And probably that's what happens with office space too. Like it it but it'll take a long time to shake out.
0: You had an amazing chart, Emily, which showed retail vacancies like at an all-time low, like way lower than pre-pandemic, which yeah. totally shocked me. Shocking.
2: <laughs> that's just that's because I mean, there's less demand for retail space, so there's less supply. Like eventually people start building as much of the stuff as they did before and what was already existing got revamped or remodeled or, you know, like your Bed Bath & Beyond switched to, uh, I don't know, uh, Lululemon or whatever, at Trader Joe's, you know, stuff like that. Like styles changed for what retail was in fashion. It's not like retail went away and probably office wasn't won't go away either, but it just might be a smaller thing.
0: Let's move on to talk about the SATs. Even though I am an immigrant who was in my 20s when I moved to this country, I actually took the SATs. I know what the SAT is because I lived in Palo Alto when I was 13. And do not ask me why I took the SAT when I was 13, but I did.
2: Are you going to tell us your score? I feel like you shouldn't, honestly.
0: I, I, no, I am, I have a very, very good reason why I won't tell you my score. It's bad. Which is that I have no idea what it was. Oh, uh. but yeah it was a very elegant test it was all multiple choice um there was half of it was sort of quantitative half of it was more verbal yes and the whole (laughs) thing you're done with in the space of like a couple of hours and it just measures everything it needs to measure and it can get set off and put everyone on the same you know two axis scatter plot and you can see exactly where everyone is and it gives a nice clean like-for-like comparison for everyone and then if you're a college or something like that you can use that to say you know as a very clean and easy proxy for how attractive is this candidate to get into our college and if you want to be a little bit more sophisticated about things then you can sort of Adjust that score for socioeconomic status, and you'd be like, well, if you're upper middle class, we'd expect the score to be higher. If you're working class, we'd expect the score to be lower. And then, you know, so if you have a low score, but you're working class, will kind of like bump you up a bit more, accept you anyway, because you obviously have a bunch of innate ability. That kind of thing. It seems like a very simple and effective way to judge teenagers, which is never the easiest thing to do. But Emily, it also went massively out of fashion.
2: Yeah. So this is another pandemic thing. I mean, do the pandemic things ever end? I mean, geez. But during the (laughs) pandemic, you know, kids couldn't go take the test because you go to a place and take the test with other people. You don't just like take it from home or anything like that. So a lot of colleges, I think the number was like a thousand, said, okay, forget it. Like SATs are going to be optional, SATs and ACTs, which is another test, but we're not talking about that one. They're going to be optional. And a lot of people were like, that's good because the SAT, it promotes inequality because, you know, uh, rich white kids do better than working class kids uh, typically of color. So it's good to get rid of the SAT because it promotes that inequality. So even past the pandemic, when everyone could go back in person, a lot of universities said, you know what, this is going to be optional. And the ones people most cared about where this most mattered were, you know, the Ivy League. Then this week, Dartmouth came out and said, we're going to start making the SAT mandatory for applicants again. And they did all this research showing that actually the SAT is a good way and more beneficial to disadvantaged students than people previously realized, because essentially it's a really good indicator of how you're going to do in college better than grades. And especially um, coming from like a disadvantaged school or a school that um, the admissions officers aren't as familiar with. It's a very good, clean indicator. I think the New York Times, David Leonhardt's been all over this. They had a great chart sort of showing the correlation between SAT scores and your college GPA. And it was like a very nice line. And then the correlation between your college grades and your high school grades was like more of like a scatter plot like there wasn't as much correlation. And then on top of that, when they made the the SAT scores optional, a lot of the disadvantaged students stopped sending in their scores if they didn't do well, but because admissions officers had gotten good at doing what Felix said, which is like basically grading on a curve for kids from less privileged socioeconomic status or like worse schools, that that wasn't a good idea because like if you had a 1400 coming from like a bad neighborhood in a bad school and you're competing with like rich kids who have like 1550s or whatever you think, oh, I shouldn't submit my 1400, but actually you should because a school like Dartmouth knows the difference and will get you in. So Dartmouth is now back with the SATs and I think it's expected and MIT also went back to taking them and I think it's expected that other schools will follow suit.
1: Yeah. I mean, you also have to consider that, you know, the things that go into college admissions decisions are, you know, multifactorial. So you have the your standardized test scores, your GPA, but also things like extracurricular activities or, you know, they'll take into consideration not just economic structures, but, you know, whether your parents had gone to college, that sort of thing.
2: Yeah. And when they look at extracurricular activities, that's really hard for the disadvantaged kids to compete on because they can't afford to do like travel soccer, they can't afford to be on the ski team or take trips places. Like that's that's an even like when you're looking at SATs or extracurriculars as a way to like increase decrease inequality. It's like extracurriculars is going to hit you hard and if you take the SAT away, you're just making it more unequal for everyone.
0: So, I like the idea that this was a kind of pandemic era thing that needed to happen for pandemic purposes, you know, everyone knows that High school education during the pandemic, like all education was for CACTA and (laughs) it kind of made sense to say that there was a cohort where we're going to sort of just make an exception and try and muddle through somehow. And then now we're reverting to pre-pandemic because what what we were doing pre-pandemic, there was a reason why we're doing it. and, And we'll just go back to that.
2: Yeah, I really like it, too. I love how the pandemic allowed for these big natural experiments so we could really figure out what works and what doesn't. The same thing with remote work. Like, it was a big natural experiment. Is this better, worse? We don't know. And it turns out it's kind of better. We're going to keep a lot of it. And then with this, it was like, "Mm, actually, now we can really drill into the data and really see what happens when we get rid of the SATs. And actually, it makes things more unequal. So look
0: at that. Okay. Should we have a numbers round? Okay. Okay. Elizabeth, what's your number?
1: My number is 89, and that's the number of Taylor Swift related prop bets and an unnamed Panamanian sports book company. What? It's unnamed because this is the, totally illegal, but the, some of the bets include, will Taylor Swift cry if Kansas loses? How many times will she appear on camera? <laughs> like this is a, and, and this is a prop bets or sh- prop is short for proposition bet. So anything that you can think of, you can, you can basically bet on.
0: Is this your way of plugging the Slate Plus segment?
1: Subconsciously, perhaps. We're going to talk about Super Bowl ads. So,
0: And the Super Bowl, which is this weekend. And well done to whoever wins. You've scored more points than the other one. I'm proud of you. So, yeah, there is obviously a Taylor Swift angle to the Super Bowl this year, which makes it much more interesting than most Super Bowls, because most Super Bowls, and you might not know this, do not have a Taylor Swift angle. Um, who's the Who's the halftime entertainment? Usher. Usher. Okay. My number is my attempt to get a rise out of Emily Peck, which is 5,000. Emily, the S&P 500 is 5,000. <laughs> what does that mean, Emily?
2: Look, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> this is so messed up. I admitted in a private work slack that I don't wa- know why everyone's making a fuss about the S&P 500 hitting 5,000 beyond like, it's a nice number. And then I admitted in the safety, <laughs> we're not even in the cone of Slate Plus right now. I admitted in the safety of the small group that like, what is the 5,000 actually mean? And now he is sending it out to all the listeners and I feel betrayed.
0: The The reason why it's not mean and you shouldn't feel betrayed is because you asked exactly the right question, and you're 100% correct. It doesn't mean anything. It is completely meaningless. And people love pretty round numbers. And there was a lot of celebration when the Dow hit 10,000. But people think about the Dow in terms of points. No one thinks about the S&P in terms of points. If I stopped someone on the street, even like I'm working on Wall Street right now, I could go out literally onto Wall Street physical Wall Street itself and stop someone on the street and say like where is the S&P 500 and they would have no idea because they'll, they'll be like I think it's up 25 25% last year or yeah. you know I, I think it fell by half a percent yesterday but no one knows what the actual number is it's not important and the question you asked which is a very good question which is 5000 watts is a good question because there is no 5 that is no there's not it's not 5000 things that there are that you can count well here's one here's two here's three it's just a meaningless number so anytime you hear you know breathless talk about s&p 5000 i think that's basically just a sign that it's a slow news day
2: you still haven't explained what the 5000 is which now i feel better because maybe you don't know
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah the fact is i don't know either i Ah! but i also don't care I have I have this idea in the back of my head that basically when the index was created, they set it to 100, <laughs> and now it's 5,000. But who knows?
2: I mean, people know, and I have a feeling we're going to get a lot of email on this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if, if you care about the absolute level of the S&P 500 and you think that 5,000 is in any way meaningful or interesting, please send us a note on SlateMoney at Slate com Emily, what's your number?
2: My number is 57.7 billion. That is the number of minutes spent watching suits on streaming in 2023. 52 billion of those minutes were just from mid-june to the end of the year because mid-june is when suits showed up on Netflix and everyone except probably you guys started watching it.
0: And so and before that it was on Paramount uh,
2: it was on Peacock. Um, at the start of the year and then it moved to netflix when it moved to netflix for some reason it exploded so this
0: is this is absolutely amazing and i love this number so much because correct me if i'm wrong here but basically there is a show which is available on streaming if it's available on streaming platform a it gets five billion streams in six months the minute it moves to streaming platform b it gets 50 billion streams in six months it's literally 10x just by moving from one platform to another. That is the value that being on Netflix can add.
2: Yeah, that is why Netflix is still getting and penning licensing deals with all the other content providers because there's no comparable platform right now. It's totally won the streaming battle. And this year was really interesting. And Suits is an old show, right? It's the Meghan Markle show from um, the USA Network. This year, the top 10 most streamed shows they were all old shows. They call them library titles. And that's the first time that's happened in the four years Nielsen's been tracking. And that's because there was just less spending on streaming in 23 and because of the strike. So everything people were watching, it's kind of sad, actually. Everything people were watching is just like old stuff. Like Friends was on the list. I mean, it's just Gilmore Girls, Grey's Anatomy. Like, this is what people are doing.
0: It's, the, it's soap opera
2: 2.0. Kind of, yeah. But it's not even new plot lines.
0: Did anyone ever watch these shows for the plot lines?
2: <laughs> I mean, I got I got covid and I got real into suits and I was <laughs> all about the plot lines. So
0: I will I will maybe one day watch an episode of suits. No. You're fine. No. I won't. Okay, I think I that's mean, it got, for this week. Got Unless COVID you and got are real into, suits, into and Super Bowl ads. All about the In lines, which case, so. you will want to subscribe to Sleep Plus and make sure that you listen to our Slate Plus on that subject. Otherwise, thanks to Jared Downing and Shayna Roth for producing. And thanks for writing in slatemoney at slate.com. And we'll be back next week with more Slate Money us on that subject otherwise thanks to jared downing and shana roth for producing and thanks for writing in slate money at slate.com and we'll be back next week with more slate money